All right, well, good morning. It's an honor to be here with you today. Um, we're going to pick back up in Luke today, but before we do, uh, I want to share a quick story with you about identity and an identity being cast, um, you know, on, on particular on me. So I work for a fairly young company, being that I also work with a lot of fairly young people. And that means that at my elderly age of 37, I am actually one of the oldest there. And so I'm often 10 plus years older than the people that I work with. And then add to it that I'm a father, I'm married, I've got you know, four kids, they see me as old. So much so that the nickname they like to give me is a baby boomer. And I'm like, guys, you're off by about like 20 years, like that's my parents' generation. <laughs> And they're like, no, no, Tim, you're old. And so I get called a boomer. And then just because the world likes to you know, cast an identity on us, I like trivia. And so I like to take these little online trivia things. And really all that it is for me is I have a wealth of fairly useless knowledge. But in trivia, it helps me out a lot. So I like to take these little quizzes just to show I do great at useless knowledge. So I'm taking this one the other day, and they often like to tell you, like, oh, like, we'll guess your age or something about you based on, like, how well you do on this. So I take this one, and I don't really care about those results. Again, all I care about is I'm great at trivia. But I take this one, and let's check out the results. Congrats. Not only are you a baby boomer, but you've got a fantastic memory. <laughs> When it comes to classic TV shows, music festivals, jingles, and food, you're an expert. Congrats. Well, there you have it. According to the world, I'm a baby boomer. So as we dive back into Luke, I want you to keep that concept of a mistaken identity and like an identity being cast onto someone. And what we're going to see is an identity being cast onto Jesus. And where we pick back up in Luke is Jesus has just been arrested. And he's being held before his trial, and he's being beaten and mocked. And then he's brought before the council, which is the Sanhedrin, and his identity is going to be called into question. They are going to go after his claim to be the Messiah. And their whole basis is that this is false. And if this is false... They can convict him of blasphemy, which, according to Levitical law, is punishable by death. And see, but there's something different about this trial. This was no Judge Judy court session. It was held in secret, behind closed doors, outside of standard due process. It's what they call a kangaroo court. If you don't know what that is, it's essentially a witch hunt. It's a witch trial. They have no intent of finding exculpatory evidence in Jesus' sake. And so as we dig through this passage, what I want you to do is watch how Jesus responds when his identity is called into question and how he lives out his high calling and mission through his identity. Let's open in prayer. Lord, I just thank you for the opportunity for us to gather together today. 
I thank you for the opportunity to be able to dive back into your word and to just see the examples that you set for us and the ways in which you teach us through the examples that Jesus set for us, Lord. Amen. So we're going to start in Luke 22, starting in verse 63. And the text will be on the screens, um, and we also have Bibles on the sides if you don't have one. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many things against him, blaspheming him. So Jesus is arrested, and he hasn't had a guilty verdict yet, but yet these soldiers are permitted to beat him and mock him. But what stands out here? What I want you to take away from this is that Jesus submits to the Father's will. See, this set of scripture is referencing a prophecy in Isaiah 53 that speaks of the suffering servant who suffers because of the sins of others. And in Isaiah it says, I was not rebellious, I turned not backward, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. See, Jesus is living out what's prophesied. And again, in Luke, Jesus foretells his death three times. And in Luke 18, he says, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. See, Jesus knows the will of the Father, and he willingly carries it out. He says, I know the plans that the Father has for me, and I know my calling. And so in this moment, I will be obedient, even though I know what that will take. And see, Jesus sets an example for us. And so the first thing that I want us to take away as an application for our lives is Jesus calls us to submit to his will. As we go through Luke, I want to parallel this with 1 Peter 2. And so starting in verse 18... Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to do good and gentle, but not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. See, we have the same calling that Jesus has. That we are to submit to the Father's will and that even when that means We will face hard times. We are to pursue faithfully, knowing that this is what God has called us to do. Let's continue in Luke. When day came, the assembly of elders of people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, 
If you are Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin here. And he's brought before Caiaphas who's the chief priest of the time. And something that's so important about this passage is that it happens at daybreak. See, according to their laws, in order for this trial to be legal, it had to happen during the day. But remember how I said this was a kangaroo court? Here's a definition of that. A court held by legitimate judicial authority, which intentionally disregards the court's legal or ethical obligations, ignoring due process and coming to a predetermined conclusion. This is the Sanhedrin. They don't care one bit about legitimacy here. They have no intent on upholding due process, and they've already come to their verdict. They already know what they're going to convict Jesus of, and this is really just a show in order to say we did our due diligence. And so you remember how I said the whole basis behind this is that is Jesus of Nazareth claiming to be the Christ of God, the Messiah. And for them, they said that's false. And like I said, this would be considered blasphemy to make this claim. And so, again, as Levitical law said, he who blasphemes the name shall be put to death. See, the Sanhedrin knew the Old Testament. They knew the ins and outs of it, and they intended on upholding it. But they had a problem. They couldn't just do this on their own power. See, for they were under Roman law, and under Roman law, this wouldn't be enough grounds to convict Jesus and sentence him to death. See, Rome does not care if Jesus claims to be God. But what Rome does care about is if Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Because, see, the Messiah is a savior of their people. And this could start a rebellion. And for Rome, starting a rebellion is cause for death. But what do we see Jesus do here in this moment? Jesus is humble in the face of adversity. We watched, last week, we watched Peter act out of emotion and pride when Jesus was arrested. And we see Jesus do the opposite here. Jesus remains calm. And he doesn't engage when they try to rile him up. The other thing is Jesus knows the hearts of his accusers. And he knows it's futile to preach a sermon to them or to try to persuade them. His best course of action is to remain humble and calm. And see, the thing is, is Jesus has all authority, power, and knowledge. In an instant, he can change his situation. See, because we believe that Jesus is fully man and fully God, 
which means he can just snap his fingers and say, you know what, I'm done with this. I don't want to endure this anymore. But remember how I said, Jesus submits to the will of the Father. So Jesus says, God, I know what you've called me to do. And so in this moment, for the sake of my people, I will remain humble and calm. And so again, we see Jesus setting an example for us. God calls us to live humbly, especially in the face of adversity. Let's go back to 1 Peter. For what credit is it if, when you sin and you are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. Let's continue on in Luke. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Jesus is quite clear who he is right here. This statement is, yes, I am the Messiah. And see, Jesus, in this statement, is showing his power, authority, and knowledge. And Jesus is also saying to this council, we will meet again, and it will be in the context of a court. But this time, Jesus will be the judge. And this is a bold proclamation to make in front of them. But see, the reason Jesus says this is because Jesus knows his identity. He uses three titles for himself. Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. See, Jesus' understanding of his identity is what allows him the strength to follow through with the will of the Father. He can see beyond the suffering of the cross to the glories of the throne. This statement, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. This statement is a claim of power, authority, and honor. That is a claim that Jesus is God. And remember how I've said Jesus is setting examples for us. And so here, Christ is calling us to place our identity in him. I want to go back to 1 Peter again. And this section is a little lengthy, but it's just filled with so much good. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled. He <clears throat> when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's such a beautiful picture of what Christ did for us and the example that he sets for us. And see, something else to note there is that we believe that Scripture is God-breathed. And so when we're reading in Peter, Peter may have been the person who wrote it down, but it was Christ and it was God that was speaking through Peter. And so when you're reading that section of Scripture in 1 Peter, you can hear that as God speaking to you and God reminding you of what he did and the example he set for us and, the, and what he calls us to do. Let's continue on in Luke. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They have what they need. They have enough to convict him, and they're going to say anything that he says. They're going to say this is false, and they can convict him of blasphemy. But see, this is fulfilling prophecy. And so God's will is still being carried out, even in this moment. And Jesus is now sent to his civil trial. So as we go through this scripture, you say, well, how do I apply that to my life? And I want to bring back those three applications that I spoke of. God calls us to submit to his will. God calls us to live humbly, especially in the face of adversity. And Christ calls us to place our identity in him. And so you ask, how? How do I do these things? Well, it starts with that we all have the same calling. It starts with a simple question. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. I want us to turn over to Matthew real quick and just read the Great Commission. So in Matthew 28. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded of you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, this, this is our church's mission statement, to be and make true disciples. And so that's where it starts But I also want to tell you, this doesn't mean hard times won't come. And they will come. And you, like Jesus, will find yourself on your knees, making the statement, Lord, let this cup pass from me. And in those moments, again, remember how Jesus is constantly setting examples for us. Our calling is to humbly submit to the will of the Father. And in that moment, we have to finish off the verse, that, the statement that Jesus makes. 
at the end of let this cup pass for me. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, friends, our identity must be rooted in Christ. And when we begin to misunderstand our identity, we struggle to submit. We let pride in. And we make statements like, well, I'm not gifted in evangelism. It's not my calling, or I'm not qualified. I want to give you guys a fun fact. By worldly standards, I am not qualified to stand before you today. I am a guy with a film degree that has struggled with stage fright. I'll give you a quick illustration of this. My freshman year of college, I'm taking a public communications class. I have to give my first speech. I went to a, a small college, so there's only about 20 people in the room. I got about halfway through my speech, lost my place in my notes, turned beet red, so I did the most logical thing. I gathered my notes, and I just walked right back to my seat. I said nothing. I made sure to leave a huge, just awkward silence in the room. And one of my classmates tried to do the, and I was like, no, 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 no. Just, just move on. Just call the next person up. Let's go. So what's changed? What's changed from my freshman year of college to now? Is it my abilities? I don't think so, friends. I really don't. See, my understanding of Christ as my identity has changed. My understanding of what that means has completely transformed my life. It's given me the willingness to be obedient, and it's said that it's not about me and it's not about my abilities, because on my own, I'm going to be that same scared kid that's going to grab his notes and just go sit back down. And see, when we go back to the Great Commission, and we, we look at that again, we'll make one grave mistake here. If we leave off the last part of verse 20, we are in a lot of trouble. But see, when we look at that, and we say, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, Christ is telling us, you're not alone. And it's not on your strength. It's on my strength. It's on my abilities. See, so I can stand before you confident today, not in me, because I promise you, if it's just in me, I'm going to walk out of here terrified. But I'm confident in who God is and who Christ is in my life and the examples he's set for me, which gives me the ability to just be obedient. It allows pride to not get in the way and to just be a faithful steward of his will. There's two quotes that I want to read for you that just give a great representation of this identity. The first is from Henry Nouwen. Jesus came to announce to us that an identity based on success, popularity, and power is a false identity, an illusion. Loudly and clearly, he says, 
You are not what the world makes you, but you are a child of God. And the second is from Timothy Keller. And I want you just to look at the juxtaposition that he has between religion and gospel. See, religion says, my identity is built on being a good person. Gospel says, my identity is not built on my record or performance, but on Christ. See, when your identity is rooted in Christ, it no longer becomes about you and about what you can do. It's about what he can do through you. I want to leave you with this question. Where is your identity? Have you placed it in your job? Have you placed it in your title, your finances, your marriage, your children, your body? The list continues to go on and on and on. Here's a quick health check you can do. When somebody calls a piece of your identity into question and it causes it to like stir up inside you like a frustration, it upsets you, that's a place where you have not allowed God to become your identity. We're going to transition to communion now. And as we do that, I want to challenge us with something. I want you to ask God to show you where you have a mistaken identity, where you've placed your identity in something of this world. And for some of us today, your step forward may be asking God, can you take the place of this? Can you fill this piece of my identity with you? And for others of you, maybe you've never placed your identity in Christ. And today could be the first day. And I would just ask that you do one thing. Let someone know. Let somebody know that today you want Christ to be your identity. Jeff, Mike, myself, we would love to pray with you and we'd love to celebrate with you. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer?